open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> For those of you that uh, weren't here last week, we completed chapter 9. We looked at one of the more classic passages about running the race and running the race in such a way so as to win. And as we continue as uh, exploring through the topic of Christian liberty through the book of Corinthians, we remember that Paul established the principle of our Christian liberty or our Christian freedom in verse 9. Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And although Christians are free to do whatever Scripture does not forbid as being morally wrong, this guiding principle is given as a means of protecting those who are spiritually weak and could easily be led into temptation to sin through our freedom. So there's a great exercise that we are to apply to the freedom that we enjoy so that we don't become a stumbling block or a violation of the conscience of those who are weaker than we in our faith. So if we exercise this freedom and love, as Paul did, then we will be willing to restrict our liberties to keep from violating the consciences of those who are weaker than us or to be a source of temptation to others who are coming out of a pagan background or a life steeped in sin and we encourage them to a holy life as opposed to dangling in front of them the old life that they are trying to rid themselves from. So in chapter 9, Paul has illustrated the limitation that liberty has taken in his own life and in his own ministry. So in order to, to prevent anyone from ever believing that Paul did what he did and traveled the way that he did because of the money that he would be given, Paul refused to be compensated by those that he ministered to and instead chose to work supporting himself so that he could minister to others without creating a problem for them and what they thought he was doing and why he was doing it. Paul's mission was to give the gospel to free, to, excuse me, to give the gospel freely to everyone without expectation of any kind of compensation. So Paul would modify his lifestyle in ways that were scripturally permissible in order to be a more effective witness to whomever he was witnessing to, whether they be Greek or Jew. So the second half of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9 illustrate how using our freedom affects others. And now in chapter 10, we're going to see how our liberty affects ourselves. Spiritual overcompetence is a sure way that we will wander away from God unintentionally or perhaps wander away from God brazenly into areas that may be difficult for us to escape from. So Paul has already addressed the Corinthians' overconfidence as they evaluated themselves, their wisdom, their knowledge, their strength. Paul dealt with this all the way back in chapter 4. So read along with me what Paul has already said and we have studied. This is their perspective. You are already filled. You are already. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. 
We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, and are poorly clothed, and are roughly treated, and are homeless. And we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. When we have become as the scums of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you, as my beloved children. So the Corinthians exhibited an attitude of superiority, overconfidence, spiritual self-sufficiency, and it is this attitude that has caused them to ignore the needs of other Christians, weaker Christians, and to overestimate their own strength. So continuing from the end of chapter 9 and the analogy of athletic training... Paul will use the history of ancient Israel to make this application of this principle and to show how it affected many of the Israelites. So, as we looked at last week in the conclusion of chapter 9, all the runners in the race run, but not all win. So also, all the Israelites experience the blessings of the Exodus and the divine provision given to them by God But not all made it to the promised land. The Corinthians were to interpret their situation in light of the analogy of the athletic games that Paul has just described to them. And so in order to do that and to make that connection, Paul is going to use the Israelites' experience of redemption and idolatry and destruction as a lens through which the Corinthians are to understand their own situation, perhaps in a way that they have never viewed it before. So read with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to begin in 1 and go all the way through 13. And here's what God's Word says to us today. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure. Now there's a lot in there. And we're going to divide this out into three sections. And this is going to be Roman numeral 3 as we begun the idea of studying the principle 
of Christian liberty. We've looked at the principle explained, the principle illustrated, and now we're going to look at the principle applied. The application of this principle is rooted in the history of Israel. The first thing that we're going to look at is the shared blessing. Each example Paul gives communicates the shared blessing of redemption amongst all of those who were delivered from slavery to the nation of Egypt. Paul begins by saying in verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. So in the event that they were not aware, or perhaps that they had forgotten about this tragic picture in the history of Israel, Paul wants them to understand very clearly what happened to them, and why it happened. So this application is extremely important, just as the do you not know of the previous section Paul used to emphasize for the listener's benefit. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. Meaning this is very, very important. You cannot miss this. This is what all of this principle about Christian liberty is really about. So Paul is pleading for their attention. And you will note that Paul is going to use the word all five times in these four verses. All of these are going to relate to the shared blessing that they enjoy. Number one, or letter A, is their deliverance. The latter part of verse 1 says that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Clearly, Paul is speaking of the exodus of the Israelites from their 400-year bondage to the nation of Egypt. You know what the cloud was, right? The cloud speaks of God's constant presence with them. How He led them to and how He led them through the Red Sea as the Egyptian army was pursuing them with the intent of bringing them back to bondage. And as they crossed through the Red Sea under the provision of God by parting the Red Sea and the cloud that led them through, God then pulled the plug on the walls and destroyed what was perhaps the most powerful army of the day. These were God's people and He called them to freedom both physically and spiritually and all of them had this common experience. You know there's not a single Israelite who was drowned in the collapsing walls of the Red Sea. All experienced the cloud, all experienced the deliverance, all shared in this incredible blessing that God had poured out amongst them. Secondly, letter B, identification. The second part of the shared blessing is the identification that they had as the people of God, as the newly established Israelite nation. Verse 2, And all were baptized in Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea. So the reference to baptism here should not be understood to mean that the Israelites were somehow baptized in the Red Sea or were somehow baptized under the covering of the cloud. But rather they're passing through the Red Sea with Moses as their leader was the completion of their deliverance. No longer in bondage no longer in jeopardy from the pursuing army behind them. They had made it through, and they might have gone, that was close. But the point is, all of them were now baptized into Moses as the completion of their deliverance. Moses was their leader. 
God was the provider. So Paul uses the word baptism to make a strong connection to the Corinthian experience, most of whom experienced baptism as the beginning of their new spiritual life. They probably knew nothing of circumcision, what that represented. They may not have known anything about this miraculous Exodus story, but they did know what baptism meant. And so Paul is making this connection for them. And while we understand that baptism does not save us, it still is a public declaration of our union with Christ and our willingness to be identified with Him. So as they crossed through the Red Sea, it gave this group of people who were just slaves a few hours ago a unique identity as the people of God. So they share in this union with with God and their identity with Him, the Corinthians with Christ and with God, as this is explained by Paul in Galatians 3.27. For all of you, speaking to the church, who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. So in a similar way, Christ is our agent of deliverance, kind of like Moses was, yet we understand that God the Father is the provider. Although we understand the the union within the Godhead, the Trinitarian explanation of the person of God, Paul is making an unmistakable connection to the Corinthians based upon the history of the Israelites to say this is exactly what has happened to you. Paul's intent is clear. He establishes the parallel between the experience of ancient Israel and her salvation from the Egyptians and the believer's deliverance from the bondage of sin symbolized in Christian baptism. Now, when you were dunked under the water, in fact, when I baptize people, I say in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, buried with Christ, poof, Raised to walk a newness of life. It symbolizes a new life. It symbolizes our union with Christ and our identity as His follower. So just as, as Israel identified with Moses in the events of the Exodus, so too believers identify with their deliverer, Christ, in this new and in this greater Exodus. Exodus. Again, all of the Israelites shared in this identification. Letter C, spiritual nourishment. Verses 3 and 4. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Now clearly this is a reference to the daily provision of manna by God as they wandered into the barren wilderness where there was not vegetation, where there apparently wasn't any game animal to hunt, and they didn't have any arrows or spears. I guess the best they could do was to try to find a rock and hit something. But if that's what they were left to, they were going to starve and die. And God miraculously provided for their nourishment by giving to them manna and by providing for them water from a rock. Now, I've seen a lot of water flow over rocks. And I've seen a lot of water flow around the rock, but I've never seen water come from a rock. A miraculous provision by God for His people that He has just completed deliverance for. Now, while these 
elements here, the manna and the water from the rock, are physical provisions that are meant to be understood as God's spiritual commitment to provide all that they needed because of their union with Him. Now, the latter part of verse 4 provides an important connection for the Corinthians who may not be able to identify with what Paul has just explained to them. So the latter part of verse 4 says, For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to why Paul says what he says right here, but apparently there was this this tradition or this folklore, if you will, that this rock that provided the water for the Israelites in the wilderness somehow followed them all through their wilderness wanderings. It was kind of a legend, and apparently Paul is picking up upon this legend and saying that this rock which followed them, whether physically or metaphorically, that provided water for them in the barren wilderness, is actually... Christ. So he's making this connection from this physical food and this physical water to the spiritual food and the spiritual water that Christ provides because of our and because of their union with him. Now where the Old Testament only speaks of God being at work, Paul and other New Testament writers often provide a Trinitarian context to the events that took place in the Old Testament. So this provides an important bridge for those who lack an understanding of the unified work of the Godhead. So when you and I, who are deeply entrenched in a Trinitarian understanding, we hear about God, or we hear about the Spirit, or we hear about Jesus. We don't make a distinction amongst the three persons as it explained to us. We think of a singular God who did this thing. But in the Old Testament, you only get God, or you get Yahweh. And so Paul and other writers create a bridge that explains the Trinitarian connection for those who may not have it. So the same God, or Christ, who Pass down judgment on Israel will do the same to the Corinthians who are following in their footsteps. Again, all of Israel experienced this spiritual nourishment. Now, the second part of this principle applied here, not only the shared blessing, but is here, number two, it is the tragic example. Verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. That word nevertheless translates a strong Greek adversative clause which stands as a stark contrast to the blessings that all of Israel had experienced. That shared blessing. But, or nevertheless. So the contrast is very simply death. Even though they experienced this deliverance and this union and this spiritual nourishment, the overwhelming experience of most of Israel was death. Doesn't that kind of sound like a head scratch? Like, what, what? What? Why did that happen? What's going on here? If they experienced all of this stuff, why did so many of them die? Even though all experienced a shared blessing, most of them died in the wilderness. Think about this. Of the twelve spies who went out into the promised land, 
only two came back and gave a favorable report. And what did the ten spies accomplish when they said, oh my goodness, it's an incredible land, but there's giants in the land, and we're like grasshoppers in their sight, and surely they're going to thump us and we're going to be gone if that's what they choose to do. So they entirely and thoroughly discouraged the nation of Israel from trusting God and obeying God and following God's provision into the promised land. Moses and Aaron, the two spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel, were disqualified from entering because the rock at Meribah that Moses struck with his staff that provided the water, Moses disobeyed and did not speak to the rock, and in a moment of anger he sinned. And so they were excluded from entrance into the promised land. And so despite the sacred blessings... Similar in kind to those that the Corinthians enjoyed, including the presence of Christ himself to nourish them with spiritual drink, most of the Israelites failed to obtain the prize. They ran, but not to win. Now, as I mentioned this last week, I've watched many, many track and field events in my day. And I've never ever seen anybody at the, at the starter's pistol or at the exclamation of go just kind of wander around and look at the skies and wave to people in the stands and say, boy, it's a beautiful day to be out here today. I'm getting a little warm though. I think I'm going to go find the concession stand and get myself something cold to drink and maybe even find a nice comfortable chair and get myself something to snack on while I watch this exciting race take place. I've never ever ever seen anybody in a race do that. They ran, but not to win. An entire generation of Israelites died in the wilderness, and those that died ran the race. They didn't win. And as Paul warned at the end of chapter 9, they were disqualified. Think about that. Doesn't mean that you lose your salvation, but my friend, there are many, many people who falsely believe that their profession of faith is legitimate. And the legitimacy of their profession of faith is demonstrated by the way they run the race. And this is Paul's warning to the nation of Israel that that he's picking up upon and now communicating to the church of Corinth, and to us today. So the point that Paul wants to emphasize to the Corinthians is very simply this. You are facing a greater danger than you can even begin to imagine. You are blinded by your arrogance and your perceived prerogative to exercise your liberty however you desire. So this is Paul's point, and this is what Paul wants for them to get as he's making this application from the life and the history of Israel. The third thing we see here in this principle applied is now the lesson is going to be explained, beginning in verse 6. Now these things happened as examples for us. In other words, you are to learn from their mistakes. You are not to repeat their mistakes. Have you ever heard that saying that history has a tendency to repeat itself? Why? Because we don't learn from the mistakes. So now Paul is going to begin to make the application of all that he has said thus far, beginning in chapter 8, verse 1. It begins in the second part of verse 6. So that we would not crave evil things as they 
also crave. So that's part of the big picture that Paul wants the Corinthians to understand is that the reason that the Israelites fell the way they did is because they craved evil things. In Paul's application, the Israelites are the prime example of personal liberty going too far, not in the gray areas, but in the black and white areas. We talked about this. There are the black areas that are strictly forbidden in Scripture. There are the white areas which are clearly instructed in Scripture. And in between are the not-so-obvious gray areas. And the Israelites said, white, I don't think so. Black, I'm all about it. And that's where they went, and that's what they did. Paul wants the Corinthians and us, God wants all the church to learn from these mistakes. And the downfall of the nation of the Israelites was very simply, they craved evil things. They violated most of the Ten Commandments before the stone chips had stopped flying. Think about it. Paul says they craved evil things, which indicates their perceived freedoms had transitioned into sinful desires, which is what Paul is so concerned about. The parallel is very clear. Just as the Israelites craved evil things, so do you. You know, they couldn't say, well, the devil made me do it. They couldn't say, well, you know, in a moment of weakness I gave in. They couldn't say, well, it was all the people around me and I just, I just needed to fit in. That cannot ever become an allowable excuse for our sin. We crave evil things. And when those evil desires give birth to what? Sin. What's the byproduct? Death. That's exactly what the Israelites experienced. This is what Paul is cautioning the Corinthian church about. This is what he wants them to understand. Now Paul is going to list for us and for the church of Corinth four areas of sin that the Israelites were guilty of and the Corinthians are apparently dangerously close or already guilty of committing in their exercise of Christian liberty. The four sins that Paul mentions here begin with idolatry. Verse 7. The craving of evil things. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. So the Israelites were barely out of Egypt. And while Moses was up on Mount Sinai meeting with God, and they saw evidence of God's presence on the mountaintop, What were they doing? They were busy collecting all the gold that they had ransacked from the Egyptians and they were smelting it and they were fashioning for themselves a shiny golden calf. And that was the means of how they were going to worship this God Yahweh who had just delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians who had joined them to himself as a unique people for him and was in the process of providing for all that they needed. So they credited the calf for their deliverance, and Aaron presented the calf to the people as their God. And we read in Exodus 32, verses 4 through 6, And he took this from their hand, the gold, and he fashioned it with a graving tool, and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. 
This is your God. Here it is. But that declaration as being a representation of Yahweh wasn't enough. It goes on to say, now when Aaron saw this, he wasn't outraged, he wasn't convicted, he wasn't bothered by anything, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. By the way, that rose up to play is a euphemism for immorality. They just come out of the Red Sea. They hadn't been traveling for very long, and already they had fashioned for themselves an idol that was going to be the object of their worship, the one who powerfully led them to this new life that they were about to experience. So idols were more than familiar to the Corinthians, as we've talked about at length, because their entire society was built around these idols. No religious, social, political, or business function was conducted with some, without some involvement with idol worship or some recognition of an idol in their midst. Many of the Corinthian Christians, who were overconfident in their own moral and spiritual strength, had become careless about their participation in activities where false gods were worshipped, or were consulted, or were appealed to in some form or fashion. They believed that they could be associated with such pagan activities without being spiritually harmed. Ha! If they weren't already beyond the danger zone, why would Paul use this part of Israel's history? As we're going to look at next in two weeks, here's what Paul will say to them in the last half of this chapter. No, but I say the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. It seems to indicate that they weren't just straddling the fence, but they were over the fence and they really weren't very interested in looking back. So when Christians worship anyone or anything besides the one true God... That constitutes idolatry. Worshiping the Virgin Mary or saints or icons or angels is idolatry. No matter how sincerely they are meant to honor God, such practices are false worship and are strictly forbidden in Scripture. What is the first commandment? I am the Lord your God and you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not. Make for yourself any graven image. So churches and philosophies have developed these gods of success and love and social service and self-image or simply mankind itself as a kind of idol that is worthy of our reverence and of our worship and they constitute idolatry. Anything that takes our allegiance away from God is an idol. Now the second sin that Paul points out here is immorality. Hinted at in the first one but specifically mentioned here in verse 8. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. So Paul is picking up 
on an entirely different experience in the history of Israel. And this incident is recorded in Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. So while Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. Israel. You see that connection there? Israel had joined themselves to another idol, forsaking their joining to Yahweh, which was inaugurated through the Exodus. So eventually, God's anger would constitute the death of some 23,000 as a result of this immorality. Paul has already rebuked them for their sexual immorality. Remember the incestuous man? Remember the cause to stop visiting the temple prostitutes? Sexual immorality was closely associated with virtually all ancient religions, and even more so in the city of Corinth, which was host to the goddess Aphrodite, which had as many as a thousand temple prostitutes who did their thing in the name of worship of Aphrodite. So think about this. Just as most social occasions involved some form of idolatry, they also usually involved some form of sexual immorality, and the Corinthian Christians were skating on thin ice by willingly exposing themselves to this lifestyle. How close to the flame can you fly without getting burned? That's the question. And apparently the Corinthians were willing to fly as close as possible, believing that there was no way that they could ever get burned. So spiritual overconfidence combined with their perceived freedom has created for them an incredibly dangerous combination. The third example of sin we see here is testing God. This we see in verse 9. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. So this is from Numbers 21, not too far away from what we've already looked at. Numbers 21.5. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Well, the lack of food and the lack of water wasn't true. God provided for their daily needs, but they wanted more variety, and they got to the point where they were complaining that, you know what? It would be better to go back to Egypt and live as a slave just so we could have some variety in our diet. Think about that. (laughs) Experiencing all that God has done, and they're grumbling about a lack of variety in the food that God has provided for them. So they've questioned God's goodness, and they have tried His patience. They had no concern for pleasing God. Instead, they were only concerned about pleasing themselves. They did not use this newfound freedom no longer being enslaved to Egypt. They didn't use that to serve Him better, 
But instead, they demanded that God serve them better. And so Numbers 21.6 says, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. In a similar way, the Corinthians were testing God. How much of the flesh can I indulge in before something bad is going to happen to me? Make no mistake about it. Our gracious God has a limit. We just aren't convinced that this limit exists. And since we may not have ever seen the limit, we're not quite so certain what it would take for God to enact that limit. You remember Ananias and Sapphira when they came and they lied about the amount of money they sold the land for. And Peter said to them, why have you tested the Spirit and lied against them? And they fell on their faces and died. And what happened? Fear spread amongst the church. This this God thing is a big deal. We can't lie to this God. We can't be half-hearted in our living for this God. Well, there is a limit to God's grace. We're just not exactly sure when that limit gets applied. Lastly, letter D, complaining. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now this is from Numbers chapter 16 probably. There's another example of where this might be, but it seems most fitting here in Numbers 16 where the people have revolted against Moses' leadership. And we read in 1641, but on the next day all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, you are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. God had enacted judgment. I think this was related to Korah. They had revolted and God had given them a plague of some sort and they died and the people are now blaming the death of their fellow Israelites upon Moses and upon Aaron. And so at this testing, at this complaining, God brought down a plague that would kill 14,700 people to end this revolt against Moses. You see the pattern here? God provides, they rebel, God judges. God provides, they rebel, God judges. Continually repeated through the history of Israel. And this is where the Corinthian church is. So it's likely the Corinthians were complaining about restraint to their exercise of freedom, which is why it is probable that they asked Paul specifically in the letter they wrote to him that we don't have a copy of, what about eating food that has been sacrificed to idols? What we don't see is we really enjoy that, and it's a big old time, and we get to hang out with our buddies, and life is great. We don't really get to see that, but it appears that is probably the kind of attitude they have based upon the way Paul is challenging them and what it is he's saying to them. So complaining... It's simply dissatisfaction with God's sovereign will for our lives and the lives of others. It is a sin that He does not take lightly, even in view of the immense graciousness that God has poured out amongst us. So when God's people question or complain, they are challenging His wisdom, they're challenging His grace and His goodness, His love and His righteousness. And this is where Paul has found the church at Corinth and why he's writing what he's writing. Now, number four in in this uh, principle applied is the lesson now specifically applied to their situation. Verse 11. 
Paul says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So I'm going to deal with that last phrase, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So this is drawing back on the deliverance and the union that they've experienced in Christ and with Christ, the spiritual provision that is theirs because of Christ. So with the first advent of the Messiah, His death and His resurrection, He marks the turning of the ages. The old has passed away. The new is coming. It has begun. And He has set the future irresistibly in motion. Think about it like this. The first advent, Jesus is coming, is the beginning of the end. It is like a huge boulder rolling down a hill where there is no end. And this is what the end of the ages means when it has come. It's come upon you, you who share in this deliverance and in this union with Christ. So just as the Israelites forfeited their blessings in pursuit of their own sinful desires, so can the Corinthians, and so can we. Now, how do we forfeit the spiritual blessings that we all have shared in? It's running the race but not running the race to win. Running the race and not running the race to win is an indication of a false profession of faith. That is the expectation that we read here in Scripture. That's the expectation that Jesus gave in Luke when asked, what, it, what, it, what does it mean to be a follower? And He says, if anyone wishes to follow after me, what are you supposed to do? You deny yourself. You take up your cross and you follow me daily. That's not a half-hearted commitment. That is running the race and it's running the race to win. So we are to learn from Israel's history and not repeat it. Overconfidence in the pursuit of spiritual license will lead to disastrous results. Paul warns them again, be careful. Verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. This is the idea that somebody believes that they can be in any environment with any group of people, no matter how strong the temptation is, no matter how much of a lure it is back to the formal way of life. I'm strong enough. I'm big enough. I know enough. My Christianity, my beliefs are orthodox enough. My commitment is strong enough. Well, this warning comes on the heels of the warning about being disqualified by those who ran the race but didn't run to win. So overconfidence isn't limited to just the Israelites of Moses' day or the Corinthians of Paul's day. It is a timeless problem that results from the sinful pride of man. We read in Proverbs 16, 18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. So whenever we don't feel a sense of a need to repent, or whenever we don't feel a sense that we're wandering into an area that could be very, very difficult for us spiritually, 
the hands on the backs of our necks ought to stand up and we ought to hear the Spirit say, pay attention, be careful. If you think you're strong enough to endure this on your own, you better watch out. So Christians who become self-confident become less dependent on God's Word and on, God, on a, and on God's Spirit, and they become careless in the way they live their lives. As carelessness increases, openness to temptation increases, and resistance to sin decreases. When we feel most secure in ourselves, when we think our spiritual life is the strongest and our doctrine is the soundest and our morals are the purest, we should be most on our guard and most dependent on the Lord. Because if we think we're too strong to fall, you better watch out. Because there's a crevice or a crater right around the corner that's going to trip us up. So in all of this warning, there is the promise that we see here in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So we are all tempted in many ways, and we often succumb to these temptations, but it doesn't have to be this way. Now we would do well to remember remember that this word temptation simply means to test. The word is neutral. Temptation is not negative, nor is it positive. It is neutral and it indicates that there is a test. So this test either proves our righteousness or it is an enticement to sin which is solely determined by our response. So if we fight in the strength of God's Spirit, that temptation, it proves our righteousness. If we don't fight and we give in to it, it proves our vulnerability to whatever that test is about. So the test neither proves our righteousness or is is in of itself sinful. It just shows where we are in our heart of hearts and where we stand in our commitment and running the race to win. So if we resist in God's power, it is a test that proves our faithfulness. If we do not resist, it becomes an invitation to sin. The Bible uses the word temptation in both ways. So the promise we have is that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. He will always provide a way of escape so that we can endure the testing that we are going through. So it seems the Corinthians are not proving their righteousness as the conclusion of chapter 10 will demonstrate to us. So when you and I are tempted and we feel like we're going to buckle under the weight of, the, under the weight of that temptation, we have to remember God doesn't allow us to be tempted by anything that He does not provide a way of escape from. The devil can't make you do it. Your friends can't make you do it. You do it because you you want to do it. That's what it says. And in those areas, we are demonstrating that we are not running the race to win. We're simply just running. And that should never be true of the redeemed. Let's pray together.